welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from Haggai 1 and was given by Matthew Moffat. Um, hi, it's great to see you and be with you at this EU public meeting. My name's Matt, good to see you online. I'm one of the EU senior staff workers. I spend most of my time working with the EU's uh, ministry to research postgrads and it's great to be with you as we open up Haggai for the next two weeks. That's a fun little book, isn't it, Haggai? It's um, often one of those books that you can miss in the Bible. It's just two pages in my Bible, third last book in the Old Testament, you can just fly past it. I don't know if you've um, ever heard a talk on Haggai or ever even read Haggai. It's a book that, um, it's actually not that difficult, the message it has, but it's, it's obscure. It's from that time in the Bible's history that we don't really think about that much. And I was talking with a friend in the lead up to today, sharing that EU had these talks coming up on Haggai. And I said, oh yeah, I'll pray for that. And they sent me back a message letting me know that they'll be praying for Haggis, um, which, you know, Haggai can kind of feel like that. Not because it's complicated, but because it's obscure. So we should probably pray again as we come to read God's word and unpack what it means for us today. So why don't you pray with me? Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives as it is in heaven. Please help us to know you more, that we might love you more deeply and serve you more faithfully and fruitfully for the praise of your honour and glory. Amen. Um, oh, by the way, there's a slide that's going to come up. This is kind of the structure that I'm going to follow. Uh, one of the least surprising things about you is that you have a will. It might even be a strong one. You have a will. You make priorities about what you want in life. You have desires. You have plans. You have things that you want to do on the basis of your will, your priorities. Every choice you make, every hope you set, every budget you set, every spark of anger you feel when your will is threatened, every moment of relief you feel when your will is done, you have a will. And it turns out actually that God has a will too. The one true living God also has a will. He has desires. He has plans for this world that he's made. And you can go and discover what his will is. You find it in the Bible through the history of Israel and fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. You can find out what the will of God is. After all, Jesus himself teaches us to pray, may your will be done on earth as it currently is done in heaven. <clears throat> God has a will. You have a will. And your will may in fact clash with God's will. You can say, not my will, not your will be done, but my will be done. You can hate God's will, you can hate it, and you can rail against it, or you can love it and yield to it. And one interesting take on this comes from the American writer and pastor, Tim Keller. It's gonna come up on the, 
on the slides. Keller says that to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that, that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. In other words, Keller says that if God's will would look remarkably and miraculously like your own will. Keller goes on, if you don't trust the Bible enough to ever challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship with God, the other person has to be able to contradict you. And we're here at this EU public meeting today to be contradicted by God. That doesn't always feel good, but it's why we're here and why we're doing this two-week series on the prophet Haggai. Book 10 out of the 12 books that make up that section in the Bible that we call the Minor Prophets. Although, I say section, for a long time it was considered to be one book, the Book of the Twelve, of around similar length to the Book of Isaiah. They're minor not because their message was insignificant, but compared to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, their individual prophecies were significantly shorter. And the minor prophets, including Haggai, they're generally not feel-good books. They're books which challenge and confront and prod us. And yet when we come up against them, what we encounter is the face of God, the heart of God. You see, the minor prophets were truth-tellers. They dropped truth bombs to ancient Israel and ancient Judah some 500 to 800 years before the birth of Christ. And one writer says of them that with a total lack of tact, they roared out against phoniness and corruption wherever they found them. You see, the minor prophets didn't have spin doctors. They weren't into massaging the truth. The prophets told God's people that God would judge them for their sin and that God would send them into their own personal version of hell, which for them was being vomited out of the land and taken away in captivity to Babylon, now in modern Iraq. But the prophets said this not because they were hard-nosed, angry types. They said it because they felt God's heartbeat. They wanted the world to know the true and loving God, the holy and righteous one. They wanted the world to know the true and loving God and no one else. So Buchner says, on the slide, thank you, the prophets quarrel with the world is deep down a lover's quarrel. If they didn't love the world, they probably wouldn't bother to tell it that it's going to hell. They just let it go. Their quarrel is God's quarrel. In other words, the prophet's heartbeat is God's heartbeat. <clears throat> and during, during this series, the prophet Haggai invites us to have a personal relationship with God, to feel God's heartbeat, which means at least to be bugged, to be confronted 
to have our will and our priorities challenged and then to be healed and comforted by the holy, righteous and true God of love. So what does it look like to yield your will to God's will? What does it look like to align your priorities with God's priorities? Because by the way, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is not someone who just does good things. A Christian is not someone who holds to some vague idea of Christian values. A Christian is a person who yields their will to God's will, made known through Jesus Christ and his scriptures. A Christian is a person who yields either negatively, I'm a sinner, or profoundly, positively, God has forgiven me. So what does it look like for you to choose God's will and not your own? That's the question to have in the back of your mind over these two weeks as we delve into Haggai. But let's, let's meet the man, let's meet Haggai and what was going on in his time and place. We've already said that Haggai is number 10 out of the 12 minor prophets. But interestingly, he's the first prophet with a fixed date. He said there in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, that's the king of Persia, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. And historians can trace that exact date. It's the 29th of August, Monday, it just ha so happens to be. And I did go back and scroll through my iCal to check to 520 BC. It's the 29th of August, and it's the first of four prophetic oracles delivered by Haggai, each of which comes with an exact date between August and December 520. Why is it important to know that date? Well, all the earlier prophets spoke before the exile, before Israel was taken to Babylon. So we're around 70 years since the last prophets. But in the midst of that judgment that saw Israel, saw Judah taken off to, to Babylon, God had promised to be with his people in the midst of that judgment, to bless them, and in fact to raise them from the dead, which he kind of had done when he brought them back from exile 18 years earlier. In 538 BC, God used Cyrus the Persian to defeat the Babylonians and to issue a new decree which allowed the Jews to return from Babylon to Jerusalem and their homeland. And some of them did. They called the Holy Remnant here in Haggai some 43,000 people who marched out of imperial captivity in Babylon and returned to Judah and Jerusalem. And when that remnant returned, their task was to rebuild Jerusalem, which had been flattened by Babylon in 587 BC. They had to rebuild the city, and that meant, of course, rebuilding the temple, which had been destroyed. The temple Solomon, King Solomon had built had been utterly destroyed by the Babylonians. God had promised to give them a new temple, something that was actually going to be far more glorious, far more beautiful, more amazing than what had been there before. 
And you can read about it in the earlier prophets, say in Ezekiel 40 to 48. This new temple which God promises is impossibly glorious. But when God's people returned, they experienced something that you and I experience all the time. Disappointment. We see it in chapter 1, verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. <clears throat> it was a failure, a fizzer, utterly disappointing, and it summed up just below in verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. They'd started, they'd started working on the temple, but it kind of got nowhere and they, they gave up. They let it go. And so they went instead for the intuitive option, the natural, easy option, which is to go ahead and build your own life, your own home, your own patch, and settle down. They gave up on the temple, and for 18 years, they lived with that settled disappointment. And then, on the 29th of August, 520 BC, comes a fresh word of the Lord via Haggai. And the message of Haggai, it's a simple one. It's a message that's evoked by the people themselves. You can see it in verse 2, what the people have been saying. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Let's not build the temple just yet, they said. Forget about the kingdom. Forget about the hope. Forget about the prophets and the promises. Instead, they settled down. They settled for their own small priorities. Summarized in verse 3 of chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came for the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, that is the temple, remains a ruin? Or again in verse 9, My house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Now, it's interesting here, Haggai talks about paneled houses, because the only other houses we know of in Scripture which are described as being paneled like this are, well, there's two. There's King Solomon's palace in 1 Kings 7, decked out in the finest cedar from Lebanon. And of course, there's the first temple that Solomon built, also covered in the finest cedar paneling. Do you see the point that Haggai is making here? Their priority were their own homes, which they seem to actually have spared no expense on. While God's own house, his temple, the house of the Lord, remained a desolate wasteland, a ruin. But God's temple was significant for God's priorities. For Israel, the temple of the Lord provided a gateway to God. It represented the presence of God among his people. It gave them the possibility of approaching him, the Jew and even non-Jew. 
and the possibility of knowing him through the atoning of sins by the sacrifice of a lamb. The temple represented a gateway, a doorway to God. And God said to that generation, attend to my will, build my temple, so that through it, people will come to know me. Now, the question I think that Haggai raises for us in response to that message is, is it time to rebuild the Lord's house? And the answer, it turns out, is yes and no, strangely. Yes and no. We'll come to the no in a moment, but in 520 BC, the answer is a resounding yes. Is it time to rebuild the Lord's house, the Lord's temple? Yes, says Haggai. Stop thinking about your own houses, your own petty priorities. Get to it. Rebuild the temple. Get your priorities right. And it turns out that's exactly what the people did. They aligned their will to God's will. They yielded in the only way that God gives us to align our will with his will. They repented. Now, Haggai Haggai doesn't give us much of the specifics here, except that it took place about three weeks later. You see it in verse 14 of chapter 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. That was the 21st of September, 520 BC. 23 days later, you, can, you could describe it really as something of a revival actually, as God stirs their hearts and their wills to yield to his will. A people who had been fixated for 18 years on their own houses now prioritized the glory of God's house. God stirred their spirits and they realigned their wills to God's will. So is it time to rebuild the temple? Yes, says Haggai to his generation. Get your priorities in order. Get to it. Rebuild the temple. But if we ask that same question in 2022, will we get the same answer? After all, the temple is lying flattened again. It's a pile of rocks, what's left of it. Destroyed, burnt by imperial conquest 2,000 years ago. Is it time to build the temple of the Lord? No. That's an emphatic yes in 520 BC, but in 2022, the answer, it turns out, is no. The the call of Haggai is not for us to trudge over to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, this may seem contrary to what I just said, but this really is at the heart of the Christian message. And if you get this, and not everyone does, but if you get this, then you can become a Christian today. Haggai says that no matter what hammers and nails are in your hands, in the end, it's God who does the work, not you. It's God who will build the impossibly beautiful, the impossibly glorious temple in his own timing. It's God who blesses you, not you who blesses him. And you see this in chapter 2 in verse 1. On the 17th of October, 520 BC, 
Eight weeks after Haggai first declared a message from the Lord, Haggai brings his second message. And Haggai's message to his generation is, look at what you have built. It looks weak. It's unimpressive. But the message goes on. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. <clears throat> Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? That is, who remembers the temple before it was flattened by the Babylonians? The only people who could have would have been 70 or over. And its new temple, it's a fizzer. It's unimpressive. It's weak and pathetic. But God goes on, verse 4, But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I promised you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For 18 years, the people have lived with failure and disappointment. 18 years of being reminded that the glory days are in the past, that their, <clears throat> that their best days have failed. But God made a promise to them, the same promise he had made their ancestors generations before when they came up out of Egypt. Be strong. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. The God of the Exodus is there with them. Do not fear. And in that promise, the promise of the God who binds himself to his people, there is a word, an extraordinary word of hope. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Look around, says Haggai. Look around at your disappointing building efforts. Look around. Once more, says the Lord, will I shake the heavens and the earth. And you will see my glory. You will feel it. God will act in a way that will be totally unmissable. The glory of what God will build will be greater, impossibly greater than what existed before. And here's the hope. What's desired by all the nations will come. That is what is treasured by people, the wealth of the nations, the silver and the gold will flow into Jerusalem and adorn this impossibly beautiful temple. The disappointment and the desolation will be utterly replaced and long forgotten with something 
much more glorious. The silver and the gold, it all belongs to the Lord and he's going to use it to adorn his place of presence. And God will bless his people and not vice versa. It's not about the bricks and the mortar that they use. It's about what God will do in his strength. Now, if you look just at verse 7 for a moment, there's a very old, very beautiful Christian reading of this verse, particularly that phrase, what is desired by all nations, which interprets it Christologically. Uh, it used to be translated something like the desire of the nations. And for a long time, Christians, basically since the beginning of the church, have read that to be talking particularly about Jesus. Um, the Hebrew doesn't quite work for them to be able to do that. It doesn't quite work to be able to translate it as the desire of the nations. It's talking about multiple things, which is a bit of a shame because it ruins my favorite Christmas hymn. Um, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel picks up on this phrase. And yet, this promise of the desire of the nations, the promise of what's pictured in Haggai 2, 1 to 9, is picked up elsewhere in the New Testament. And it's obviously talking about the day when Jesus comes. The New Testament book of Hebrews, for instance, picks up on this hope. Hebrews 12, 28 says that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The nations that we're familiar with are shaken by so many things, by fires and floods, by pestilence and plague, by war and genocide, economic downturns and growing inequality. In contrast to the nations of the world, God's unshakable kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, a kingdom filled with God's impossibly beautiful glory. God will make his presence dwell there, not through bricks and mortar, not through hammer and nail, not by the efforts of your hands, he'll do it for his own strength. And what Haggai speaks of in chapter 2 looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, of God's anointed ruler, the one who will rule over the nations of the world with peace and glory. You may know that in the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 2, Jesus came to the temple. Jesus was Zerubbabel's great, 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 great grandson. Nine greats in there. Jesus went into the temple to shake it up. He overturned the tables and the temple. And the Jews, they responded in verse 18 of John 2 with, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Tear it down, he said. I dare you. And I will raise it up again in three days. They responded to Jesus. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Uh, speaking of the, the temple that was built by Herod, the temple in Haggai's day was so embarrassing, actually, that when King Herod came along, 
He had to rebuild it and make it even more beautiful than it was because it was pretty ugly, pretty pathetic. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you were going to raise it in three days. But John makes the point that the temple that Jesus had spoken of was his body. It wasn't about bricks and mortar, but his body. And the temple of the Lord wouldn't be overthrown by the empires of the world, but it would be taken down as it went to the cross. And John says in verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See that there is a God, he has a will, he has desires, he has plans for the world he's made. And those plans come not because of what we build, but through what God has built in the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus is now the temple, the true one, the glorious one, the impossibly beautiful one. And he's not representing God or representing a gateway to God. He is God. He is the door. He is the forgiveness of sins wrought by his blood shed on the cross. He is the peace. He is God coming to us in a little while, full of God's glory and peace. And so what do we learn about our priorities from Haggai 1? As we wrap up, I've got two quick thoughts for you. Firstly, pay attention to your disappointments. Give ear to your disappointments. For all the pain that disappointment might bring, your disappointment that tells you what's on your heart. For Haggai's generation, they expected much, but it turned out to be little. Our disappointments, they make us do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. When you're disappointed, you might just settle for less. So give ear to your disappointments, pay attention to them. They're much easier to remember, aren't they, than just the, the exciting thrills in our life. Give ear to your disappointment. What are the disappointments that make you procrastinate? Consider your disappointment, for they reveal where the priorities of your heart lies. Secondly, don't let your disappointments and fears derail you from kingdom work. Now, how can you tell if you're being derailed from kingdom work? Well, let me ask you, how are you spending your time or your money right now? Because how you spend your money, how you invest your time, is usually a pretty good indication of where your priorities lie. Where are you investing in kingdom work now? Or are you building your life out of your own comfort and fear and disappointment? Have you minimized your concerns to maximize your own personal happiness and safety? How are you building? I'll give you some examples. Are there people in your faculty that you can meet with to encourage in the Lord? Is there someone with doubts or someone who is lonely that you're meeting in Christ's name? Is there an international student in your class, maybe in your group assignment, that you can reach out to and get to know with a spirit of kindness and hospitality? 
Is there a church nearby that's less resourced or maybe in a less rich part of Sydney that you can give to with your time and your money or your energy that you could go and serve and be a blessing to? Are you praying in the privacy of your own home where no one else sees to a God who hears? Don't let your disappointments derail you from kingdom work. What are you spending your time on? Is it all panelled houses? And I find that that final question strikes in a really peculiar, peculiar way here in Australia. Here we are in Sydney in the second most expensive place in the world to buy a house according to recent research. And maybe it's just the circles that I move in, but we're obsessed with our panelled houses. We talk incessantly about our houses, what we're going to do with them, what our hopes and dreams are. We go looking for our forever house. We spend our free time watching people on TV buy houses and renovate houses and sell houses. And we just spent two years locked up inside our houses. And during that time, apparently, Australia set a new record. So pat on the back, Australia. Um, During lockdown, Australia set a new record we spent a billion dollars a month renovating our homes. Gold medal Australia. We think and talk and dream incessantly about our panel houses, the great Australian dream. And when I think about my time as a student in the EU, which was 20 years ago now, so that's kind of frightening, but many of my peers were considering gospel vocational ministry after uni. We graduated and as the years went on, some of us did use our God-given freedom to train for vocational gospel ministry. Others stayed in teaching or accounting or engineering and served Jesus in their workplaces. And there's genuine, genuine Christian freedom when it comes to whether or not you should pursue vocational gospel ministry or stay in secular work. But I know that for some of my peers, It was the priority of owning a house which blocked them from leaving their jobs and training for gospel ministry. Now, does owning a house stop you from serving Jesus? No, not necessarily. Is vocational gospel ministry the only way to serve Jesus? No, by no means. But there's a prevailing priority here in Australia and especially especially in Sydney, which says that you need a house, you need to own a home to be safe, to be secure, to be comfortable, to hide from your disappointments in life. And if you get swept up in that priority, you can so easily get distracted with building your panelled houses and forget the work of the Lord. So don't buy the lie, friends. Don't buy the lie of the great Australian dream that you need to prioritise buying a place to live, that you need to prioritise your own comfort and affluence, that you need a wall to hang your plasma screen TV on. I get that you might be sitting there and you're 18 or 19 and this is something for future you to worry about. But even if you've never felt Sydney's pervading pressure around home ownership, 
the passions and priorities of your heart now will shape your response in the years to come. Don't let paneled houses be the priority of your life. And Jesus says the same thing to any of us who spend our days worrying about what to eat or what we drink or what we wear. Jesus says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. After all, if there's no resurrection of the dead, you may as well focus on what you can actually taste and touch and feel. But, says Jesus, your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows what you need. He knows about your housing situation. And so, says Jesus, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom. Let God stir you up to make his priorities your priorities. Yield to his will. And so as we finish, let me read to you from that famous quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis says that Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If it's of infinite importance, then it's worth prioritizing, don't you think? Prioritize the kingdom of God. Follow the king of the kingdom. May his will be done in every aspect and sphere of your life so that your will is to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or find out more, visit sydneyuniEU.org.